This is Finding Center, a daily half-hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Pressing Forward Faithfully. Earl K. Stice, a BYU professor of accounting when this address was given, will give his message entitled Happily Ever After, Lessons from Joseph Smith, Lehi, and the Recent Accounting Scandals. The title of my remarks is Happily Ever After. If you don't remember anything else that I say, please remember the following three points. First, Happily Ever After does not happen without continuing effort. Second, we should not get discouraged when our careful plans and solutions don't always lead to calm, clear sailing. And third, don't assume that the lives of those around you are cloudless and sunny just because the sun is shining where you are. Now, I teach accounting. I love accounting. Corporate accounting scandals the past couple of years have generated both good news and bad news for accountants. The bad news is that the entire field of accounting has now been tainted. For example, the name Arthur Anderson, which for 89 years represented professionalism and excellence, is now the punchline of late-night comedians' monologue jokes. And in my own home, there has been a troubling but subtle increase in scrutiny from my children when asking me for money for uh, household chores or for lunch money. So they'll still take a check from my wife. But with my being tainted by this whole accounting thing, uh, my credit rating is down in their eyes. And they prefer to receive payment from me in cash. Now the silver lining for accountants in all of this is that everyone has been reminded how important accounting and accountants are. Without unbiased, timely, and accurate financial reports, our capitalist system just doesn't work very well. For example, without reliable financial reports, bankers are more uncertain about the ability of a company to repay a loan. This increased lender's risk makes it harder for companies, especially small companies, to get loans. In addition, the investor crisis in confidence sparked by the relentless barrage of accounting scandals in 2001 and 2002 helped lower stock values in the United States by 20 percent. That's a $2 trillion loss in wealth for U.S. investors. Those of you who have dismissed accountants as bean counters must now acknowledge that those are pretty important beans. (laughs) So what were the underlying causes of these accounting scandals? Among the many candidates, let me mention two greed and bad accounting rules. Now, greed has been with us for a long time. In Moses chapter 5, we read that Cain learned from his mentor, Satan, that he might murder and get gain. After Cain slew his brother Abel, he gloried in what he accomplished and said, I am free. Surely the flocks of my brother falleth into my hands. With his ill-gotten wealth, Cain saw himself as being financially free from money worries. But this feeling of freedom was almost surely short-lived. Greed is insatiable, and it probably wasn't long before Cain looked with envy on other flocks and fields. In fact, his greed ensured that he would never be financially free. With the accounting scandals, we have seen greed in the corporate boardroom. We have seen greed among bankers who knowingly finance some pretty unsavory plans. And we have seen greed among employees who have been more than willing to turn a blind eye to rampant corporate deceit because that deceit was helping to boost the value of the shares that they had in their own 401k plans. We have seen greed among auditors who didn't blow the whistle on financial accounting fraud for fear of losing business of lucrative clients. 
And we have seen greed from attorneys, no surprises there, who chalked up many billable hours advising their corporate clients how to carefully structure their deceptive financial dealings and who have chalked up even more billable hours helping to clean up the mess that they helped create in the first place. Now, for government regulators and concerned uh, people in the business community eager to fix the accounting scandals, greed is not a very promising target. Greed is with us for the long haul and cannot be legislated or regulated out of existence. So if greed can't be eliminated, the next alternative is to improve the accounting rules and the auditing practices. The most visible result of this effort is the Sarbanes-Oxley Act passed by Congress in 2002. The provisions of Sarbanes-Oxley include, for example, the requirement that all large companies in the United States develop a code of executive ethics and that the head of each company personally vouch for the reliability of the company's financial reports. In addition to Sarbanes-Oxley, the detailed accounting rules governing U.S. companies have been actively re-examined in order to close the loopholes that the accounting scandals have revealed. Now, the hope in all this is that the accounting problems will be solved once and for all and that the U.S. business community can live happily ever after. This is wishful thinking. Uh, Sarbanes-Oxley and the individual efforts of good business people and accountants around the country have made things better, but let's not kid ourselves. There will be more accounting scandals. The underlying problem of greedy managers still exists. And these managers will find ways to circumvent and exploit any set of accounting rules. So is there no hope? Well, of course there's hope. There's only hope if we remember that happily ever after doesn't happen through a single event, a single congressional act, or a one-time overhaul of the accounting rules. The economic environment evolves. Creative accountants will cook up new ways to deceive, and a new generation of investors will forget the expensive lessons of the past. Accordingly, Congress, regulators, and the accounting profession have to actively seek out and solve new problems as they arise. We make a mistake by getting discouraged when a past answer fails to provide a solution to a future question. Life is about learning from the past and then relishing the opportunity to generate new answers to new questions as they arise. Ultimately, the reliability of our financial reports will be greatly enhanced by our experiences with Enron, WorldCom, Arthur Anderson, and the rest, not so much by the one-time corrections made in direct response to the scandals, but more through continuing application of the lessons learned through those scandals. This is an important point, that happily ever after is a continuing process and not the result of a one-time event. And this point is illustrated over and over in the scriptures. Let me give you a few of my favorite examples. As a 14-year-old boy in 1820, Joseph Smith had thought that he had a fairly straightforward question to ask the Lord. In his history, Joseph mentioned three religious denominations that were prominent in the area in which he lived, and he wanted to know which of those three he should join. I believe that Joseph wanted to join one of those churches and then live happily ever after. Instead, he was told that he must join none of them. Not only did Joseph not get a resolution to the which church is right question, but he now had the added challenge of ridicule because he affirmed that he had seen a vision. Three years later, Joseph again went to the Lord with a straightforward request as follows. After I had retired to my bed for the night, I betook myself to prayer and supplication to Almighty God for forgiveness of all my sins and follies, and also for a manifestation to me that I might know my state and standing before him for I had full confidence in obtaining a divine manifestation as I previously had one.
Joseph simply wanted to know where he stood with the Lord. And he certainly wasn't expecting a visit from Moroni to tell him of a book deposited, written upon gold plates. The life of Joseph Smith seems to be a series of these unforeseeable developments, each of which Joseph had to accept on faith without fully understanding where it would lead, from New York to Ohio to Missouri to Illinois to martyrdom. And when Joseph cried out to the Lord to better understand his rocky path, he was told, Know thou, my son, that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. Thy days are known, and thy years shall not be numbered less. Therefore, fear not what man can do, for God shall be with you forever and ever. And what can we learn from Joseph's experiences? Yes, he did live happily ever after, but he had to wrestle with scoffers and false brethren and wickedness and laziness and disbelief until his death. And I'm sure that he faces these same challenges in his continuing ministry beyond the grave. How foolish and tragic it would have been for Joseph to have given up in discouragement in 1825 because his heavenly manifestations in answer to prayer in 1820 and 1823 had not removed all of his life's challenges. A father, Lehi, lived in a time of great wickedness in the city of Jerusalem. In Chronicles chapter 36, we read the following about the reign, the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah. He, Zedekiah, did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord, which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, but they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Now, in these frightful circumstances, Lehi prayed unto the Lord for his people, his family, his friends, and all of the people of Jerusalem. And as any of us would hope, I'm sure that Lehi hoped that the Lord would direct him how to fix these problems once and for all. And as any of us would be willing, Lehi was willing to do whatever the Lord directed. Well, the Lord directed him in something that turned out not to be a one-time fix, but instead resulted in a lifetime of preaching, teaching, and surprisingly traveling. Years later, in his new home, in the promised land across the sea, thousands of miles from Jerusalem, Lehi must have looked back and smiled at the completely unexpected way in which that initial prayer was answered. He was called to preach to a murderously wicked people in Jerusalem, then instructed to take his family and flee into the wilderness, then to travel across the most barren stretch of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, being led by a mysterious compass, and then finally to trust the fate of his family to an ocean voyage on a boat built by a first-time shipbuilder named Nephi. Now, yes, Lehi did live happily ever after. However, remember that this was not without relentless effort. Lehi and his party were faced with a lack of food, and this problem wasn't solved once and for all on the occasion when Lehi made a new bow and new arrows. Lehi sorrowed because of the rebelliousness of Laman and Lemuel, and he had to watch them repent and then rebel again and again. But he continued preaching to his wayward sons right to the end. Lehi knew that there was no end to the works of the Lord. And so there is no end to the work of his servants. Lehi pressed forward with faith in the answer to the prayer that he had offered back in First Nephi chapter 1. Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God Almighty. 
And because thou art merciful, thou wilt not suffer those who come unto thee that they shall perish. Well, Lehi did come unto the Lord. And because he continued to come to the Lord throughout his life, in spite of unforeseen hardship and discouragement, he lived happily ever after. In Luke chapter 15, we read Christ's beautiful parable of the prodigal son. The parable concludes as follows. And he, the father, said unto him, the elder brother, Son, thou art with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. Now this is a happily ever after conclusion, if I've ever heard one. The prodigal is back. The elder brother has gently been shown the error of his ways, and the father has his two sons. Happily ever after. But let's continue with that scene. That night, after the fatted calf leftovers have been put in the refrigerator, and everyone falls into a peaceful sleep, they arise the next morning. Is there anything left to be done? Or do they just live happily ever after? Well, let's consider each of the three main characters. The prodigal himself has made great strides by humbling himself and returning to the houses of his father, but there's a huge amount of follow-through that remains to be done. The prodigal has to settle down, show some responsibility, and work some long hours in those fields by the side of his elder brother. The elder brother has been taught an important lesson by his father, but resentment doesn't disappear overnight. Forever after, when there isn't sufficient money to hire additional laborers, or buy new tools, he must stop his mind from thinking back on the family savings bundled up, hauled off, and wasted by his younger brother. As he makes himself serve his younger brother, day by day he will see toleration grow into appreciation, into friendship, and finally into love. And what about the father? Uh, maybe he needs to be more aware of showing outward gratitude to his older son who is worked faithfully in the fields those many years. See, the return of the prodigal son is just the beginning. It's not the end. There will be bumps in the road as the father and his two sons implement for the rest of eternity the lessons they learned on that joyous day when the prodigal returned. And those bumps won't be so troubling if the three of them remember that happily ever after means happily dealing with the inevitable bumps that we encounter. Now think about some of the happily ever after moments in our lives. Temple marriage the arrival of a child, the receipt of a mission call, or the baptism of a child or a new convert. The joy at these moments is almost overwhelming. But in this joy are the seeds of danger, if we have unrealistic expectations about what will come next. Now, you students out there, write yourself a note. On your hand, in your day planner, in your palm pilot, write it somewhere, reminding yourself that the innocent joy that we are bathed in during these happily ever after moments is supposed to recede just a little so that we can roll up our sleeves and get to work. Savor the joy of the moment, but be realistically prepared for the ups and downs that surely lie ahead. Now let me illustrate what I mean uh, by talking about the joy associated with the arrival of a child. Some of you experience the joy of holding the newborn son or daughter in the hospital. The joy is no less when you hold it an adopted child for the first time. Now, if your life were a movie, uh, this is the moment when the music would swell and the image would grow soft and slowly fade and beautiful words and a beautiful flowing script and say, oh my heavens, it's a little boy. <laughs> 
So let's stop the music and think about this for a moment. There is a 50-50 chance that the child in your arms will be a boy. Now, more likely than not, that little boy is going to have an inexplicable fascination with fire and with sharp sticks. He is going to be able to create a blowtorch or a bomb out of common household supplies. I know this from personal experience with my own two sons, one of whom is sitting right here. He's the blowtorch once. Now, I'm not going to list the common household supplies that can be used for explosive purposes because half the audience, the men, would remember nothing else that I said except that list. So back to holding that little boy in the happily ever after moment, we realize that it's not going to be a smooth happily ever after. Yes, but what if the child's a little girl? Well, that's going to bring its own set of challenges much more complex than this, much more complex than the straightforward foolishness perpetrated by little boys. For one thing, that little girl may very well bring home one of those little boys one day, convinced that he should be her eternal companion. And in the meantime, she will jam up your phone lines, no matter how many there are, with conversations that started in school, that continue by phone at night, and then will be resumed in school the next day. These are truly 24-7 conversations. So rearing a child, boy or girl, is hard. It's hard. Serving as a full-time missionary out on the streets day after day is hard. Being married and learning to set aside your selfishness for the good of the eternal partnership is hard. And we sometimes make these precious activities harder by unreasonably believing that we are failures unless every day of our lives is an error-free, fun-filled extravaganza that is leading on a straight course without any dips, without any turbulence, straight to the celestial kingdom. Sometimes there are dips. Sometimes there's a substantial amount of turbulence. Dips and turbulence are normal and are not signs of personal weakness of character. As an example of turbulence, allow me to give a brief synopsis of the history of family scripture reading in the Stice home. Now, my wife Ramona and I have seven children. We have used a wide variety of approaches to family scripture reading over the years. We have used individualized reading charts, and as an accountant, I love charts. We have colored pictures. We have focused on scripture discussion rather than just reading, and we've also done the traditional one verse at a time family reading circle. We have read sitting up at the breakfast table, and we have read with people sprawled in various postures on the family room floor and on the couches. I have heard many verses read by sleepy, muffled voices, barely able to escape from under thick blankets on a cold winter morning. So we've done all those things. And well, with all the, this experience, one would think that the Stice family has finally got this scripture reading thing down and that we can proceed happily ever after. Well, two months ago, we added two new little girls to our family. It had been 12 years since we had last changed the diaper. And now with these two babies at once, we feel like we're changing two or three hundred diapers a day. <laughs> to put it mildly, our family routine has been thrown for a loop. And once again, we are regrouping to work out the logistics of family scripture reading. And sure, there's a little frustration because we are back dealing with an issue that I thought we had settled once and for all. I thought that as far as family scripture reading goes, we were going to live happily ever after. And we will live happily ever after 
as we cooperate to enlarge our family circle, to include two new babies in our scripture reading. And as I look at those two little girls, I wonder, will they like charts? I don't know. I'll find out. <laughs> now, our experience with family scripture reading also indicates that this continuous, patient effort to make sure that we do live happily ever after pays off. A couple of years ago, my daughter Ryan was invited to a party. Now, from the description of the activities that were planned at this party, it was clear to her that the standards outlined in the For the Strength of Youth pamphlet were not going to be followed. She reports that the first thought that came into her mind was the following. I can't go to a party like that. My family reads the scriptures in the morning. She gains spiritual power from this simple thing that we do. And we have to stay on top of to make sure that we do live happily ever after. Now I would like to make one concluding point. Just as it is important to remember for us that happily ever after is an ongoing process, we should also remember that it is an ongoing process for everyone we meet. Now this is hard to remember because people don't tend to go out of their way to show us the storms and struggles in their own lives. Our optimism and faith about our ability to deal with our challenges sometimes makes us overly philosophical about the challenges faced by others. To illustrate this point, I'm going to tell you a sailing story. My wife's brother, Ray, had a 20-foot sailboat that he kept on Lake Ontario in upstate New York. He consented to my accompanying him on a cruise from Braddock's Bay, which is just a little west of Rochester, to Sodus Bay, which is about 30 miles east of Rochester. We set out on a beautiful, sunny summer morning. The winds were coming lightly out of the west, and to my inexperienced eye, it looked like a perfect day for sailing. However, because the winds had been steady out of the west for several days, the surface of the lake was undulating in long, lazy swells. And after a couple of hours of rhythmically going up and down and up and down, I was growing increasingly apathetic about this cruise, this boat, my brother-in-law, and large bodies of water in general. <laughs> Ray saw the signs of distress, and he wisely put me to work, manning the rudder. I had to be alert because the long swells had a tendency to push the back of the boat, and for you sailors, okay, that's the stern, to the right, the starboard, and this would put us crossways to the swells, slowing our progress and, in my novice opinion, threatening to tip us over. So I gallantly manned my post there at the rudder until, my mild surprise, the rudder came loose from its attachment points on the stern of the boat. I pulled the wooden rudder up into the boat and intelligently called to Ray, Is this supposed to come loose like this? <laughs> uh, he had been relaxing, sunning himself on the foredeck, but the sight of me holding up the rudder spurred him to frantic action. He scrambled back to me, grabbed the rudder, and leaned over the stern to try to reattach the thing. His haste stemmed from the fact that we were only 300 yards from shore, and those gently rolling swells were now driving this rudderless sailboat inexorably toward the rocks. Now, I remember those anxious moments very well. There wasn't anything that I could do, really, to help him, so I had plenty of time to look around and think. Now, looming large in my thoughts was the fact that I didn't know how to swim. Well, I looked around at the lake, and I looked at the shore, and I was struck by what a beautiful day it was. 
we were close enough to the shore that I could see people pulled off the side of the road. I thought they were probably uh, having a picnic, chewing on a drumstick, looking out at us with envy, saying, Wow, look at those two guys out on that sailboat. What a beautiful day for a sail. Meanwhile, a short distance away, there we are fighting for our lives. Well, we lived. Ray, Ray fixed the rudder. We made it to Soda Spay, where we spent two days living on the boat, riding out a storm and exploring. We had been in real danger when that rudder came loose. And the fact that other people were happily picnicking just 300 yards away, admiring our sailboat, didn't lessen our danger at all. So if your life is currently in the picnic phase and all things are going well, don't assume that all is well on those pretty sailboats that surround you. The sun may be shining, but the people in those boats could still be in extreme danger, and they may not feel comfortably coming out on deck and shouting for help. Sometimes our personal optimism causes us to overlook the real struggles that are going on in the lives of people right next to us. Now, to summarize, allow me to review my three main points. Happily ever after does not happen without continuing effort. For example, the financial reporting system in the United States has been improved because of the recent accounting scandals. But regulators, accountants, and the investing public must be forever watchful to counteract the development of new techniques for fraud and accounting deception. Two, we should not get discouraged when our careful plans and solutions don't always lead to calm, clear sailing. Joseph Smith, Lehigh, and even the Stice family have learned that happily ever after means pressing forward with faith, not with discouragement, while experiencing life's unforeseeable twists and turns. And three, don't assume that the lives of those around you are cloudless and sunny just because the sun is shining where you are. Look up from your own peaceful picnic and be sensitive to the Spirit to tell you which of those nearby sailboats could really use some help. Now, may we all live our lives happily ever after, is my humble prayer in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for a half hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Pressing Forward Faithfully. Earl K. Stice gave his devotional entitled Happily Ever After lessons from Joseph Smith, Lehi, and the recent accounting scandals. Speeches on Finding Center are often edited for broadcast. Find links to the full talks and access the rest of our Finding Center episodes on the free BYU Radio app, available wherever you get your apps. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.